We're in First Peter still. Some of you have been with us. We only started a few weeks back, maybe a month and a half ago. But uh, some of you have been with us since the beginning. Some of you are just jumping on board. And uh, one of the fun parts about uh, one of the fun parts about going verse by verse through the Bible and refusing to skip a thing is every now and then you come upon a section that's going to make somebody uncomfortable. But that's okay, right? We're all good. We love the Word of God. You know, the Word of God is true. It's always true. It's always right. How you've interpreted the Word of God may not always be right, but it's always right. Do you know the difference, right? You know, people use the Word of God back in the day to justify all sorts of stuff. People use the Word of God to justify murder. People use the Word of God to justify slavery. People use the Word of God to justify abuse. None of that is, uh, is something that you can say, I think God's okay with this. So you can use these scriptures to beat somebody over the head with, or you can let it change your heart. We're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter uh, 3, and um, we just ended with that wonderful passage about how Christ gave his life for us, for we were like sheep that were gone astray, but now we've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. Uh, It starts out the next chapter with these words, in the same way. So you got to remember, we, we break this up into several weeks of study. In the case of the book of Acts, we broke it up into like a year and a half. But the, the guy that wrote this letter and the people that are reading it are reading it as a letter. And so in the same way, for us, goes back a few weeks. For them, goes back a few seconds. So we need to refresh ourselves in the same way as what? Well, he said in the beginning of chapter 2... What did he say? He says, submit yourself to every authority, to every institution, even when it's bad. Even when, I mean, I'm not talking about um, every club that meets in town, but he's saying, even when your government's not a good government, even when you, you say, boy, things could be better, for the Lord's sake, you listen to the policeman. For the Lord's sake, you keep the law. For the Lord's sake, you're good citizens, because God desires for people to be born again. God desires for them to be won over. We have to deal with some things here in this passage because he's going to talk about men and women. And I believe in a biblical definition of of man and women. I believe that God created men and women. I believe he created them different. I also believe that culture has changed over thousands of years. And so I, I think that we can say, if somebody were to ask me, what's a biblical definition of marriage? We have to look at the the big ideas of marriage, right? The big ideas, as Jesus said. God joins a man and a woman together. The two become one. What God has joined, let nobody separate. The details of that have changed through the years. Anybody here okay with with your husband having a concubine? No, you're not okay with that? No, all right. Okay, I understand your problem. Your problem is you don't want that woman to have less rights than you. So let's... So you don't want it to be like, see, Abraham, hang on. Abraham had a concubine. Abraham had a concubine, but you don't want her to have less rights. You want to be more like King David and just have equal wives, several wives, but they're all equal. Is that, is that the problem here? No. Okay. Well, I, so we've got to ask ourselves what the biblical definition of marriage is, because those are some very nice biblical people, and I don't think we'd let them in the church. 
We wouldn't stand Abraham up and say, here's our guest speaker, Abraham. Here's his, his wife, his concubines over there. Hey, everybody give a hand for Hagar, right? <laughs> King David's going to sing some of his music for us. He's got three of his wives here. Say hello to all of them. Kids with different mothers, they're wonderful, you know? When I open the book of Proverbs, first dozen chapters over and over again, my son, don't be tempted by the adulteress. Don't fall into adultery. Keep your, love your wife. This was written by a man who had 700 wives. I think it'd be pretty hard to commit adultery when you have 700 wives. The only way you're going to commit adultery is by accidentally thinking you married her at some point. All right, so, so if someone asked me what's the biblical definition of marriage, I'll go back to Genesis and I'll go back to Jesus. Those are my pillars which I build marriage on. But I understand that culture changes, all right? There are some things that don't change. Can we all agree on that? God created a male and female. What God has joined together, let nobody separate. He puts himself in that union. He joins them, the two become one. Can we all agree that that hasn't changed, right? As much as stuff has changed throughout the history, that has not changed. Do I think God wanted Abraham to have a concubine? No. Do I think God wanted David to have multiple wives? No. For some reason, God didn't make it the biggest issue. That's between him and David, right? He did make it a big issue when David committed adultery, and when he killed a man so he could get his wife. That was an issue. But I don't know why, at some point, God didn't say to David, hey, you know that deal you made with King Saul that if you kill Goliath, you'd have his daughter? Maybe just kill Goliath and don't use the daughter as a prize because I got a better wife for you. That, that to me would be a conversation God could have, but God didn't have it. It wasn't the biggest thing. It wasn't, wasn't the thing he dealt with. Or if he dealt with it, we don't have a record of it. So we understand that 2,000 years later, <clears throat> Canadian society looks a little bit different than Greek society did. That's okay. We have just finished reading about how, and we've read it in other epistles, how slaves should submit to their masters. Does anybody here think that God's okay with slavery? No. What was the point of telling, in the New Testament, telling the slaves to submit to their masters? The point was this. People got born again, and they were slaves when they got born again. When they came into the church... God said something to them that was revolutionary. You are now equal with everybody else. In the rest of Roman society, those slaves would have been treated as less than everybody else. But when they came into church, he said, there's no slaves here. What else did he say? There's no Jew, there's no Greek, no Jew, no Gentile, no slave, no free, no male, no female. In this house, we are all in Christ and Christ is in us. When you go back into the culture, now that doesn't mean that in the church you can't, there's not a distinction between male and female. There is a distinction. But what he's saying is one's not greater than the other in the body of Christ. And so when it came to slavery, for instance, God was not for slavery. But had he told all the slaves to revolt, uprise, overthrow your masters, we would have had a slave rebellion in Rome. And do you know what would have happened? They would have been put down and the gospel would have scattered. Instead, he said, our prime, our prime directive here is not to, to overhaul the Roman system. Our prime directive here is to see the invisible kingdom, the kingdom of God at work. How do we do that? He says in Titus, he says, slaves, if you'll act this way, you will wear your doctrine. And by doing that, you're going to win your master over to Jesus. 
In Colossians, he says, slaves, I know it's not fair. You're not getting paid what you should get paid. You're not getting treated like you get treated. But he says, if you'll do this for the Lord instead of for that guy, I'll make sure I repay you. What a revolutionary thought. Do you realize that God just told them you're going to get paid? It's just not by him. I'll pay you. I'll take care of you. So when we read this, there's some cultural stuff that's changed. When I read Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he tells them, you know, women keep quiet in the church, you have to understand in the culture of the time, the men and women didn't sit together when it came to these events. They were sat at opposite sides. A lot of the women weren't invited to these events to start with. So when they started coming to the church, they were asking their questions in the middle of the service, standing up, yelling at the preacher. He said, keep quiet. If you've got questions, ask them later. That's not a directive for the rest of eternity that a woman can't stand up with a microphone in church, right? Do we believe that? Right, come on. <laughs> I, I, we could prove it biblically. I can tell you about how Paul called other women in the New Testament. He writes in his letters, calls them apostles, gives them a place. Jesus probably did more for, for women as far as walking through and the way he treated those women that traveled with him. They don't get a lot of press now, but there were women that traveled with him that supported his ministry financially that he treated differently than any other rabbi that you see in his day and age. He revolutionized some things. Yet at the same time, there were some things that he said, all right, this is your culture. You go back into your culture and you shine Jesus. You be a light. Sometimes things aren't fair. Sometimes you're not going to be treated fairly. Slaves, you're not being treated fairly. I get that. When you come into the church, you have rights here. You have a place here. When you go back there, they might not treat you that way, but I want you to know who you are in Christ so it doesn't matter how they treat you. You know who God is, and you know who you are in him, and he'll repay you. If they don't treat you fair, don't worry. He'll take care of you. That's a dramatic thought. The difference between how a Pharisee reads the Bible and how a disciple reads the Bible is this. Because you realize the Pharisees and the disciples, they have the same Bible. They're reading the same stuff. In fact, the Pharisees know the Bible better than anybody else usually. The Pharisees in Jesus' time prayed prayers like this, thank God I'm not like them. Modern day Pharisee, you want to, I mean, being a Pharisee is not the worst thing in the world, but we kind of use them like that because that's the way they were in Jesus' time. They were like the, the villains a lot of times. The Sadducees were even worse, but we don't hear about them as much because they hung around Jerusalem. So the Pharisees, they'll take the Bible and they'll use it to figure out why we should be in charge, why you should treat us right, and why you're doing something wrong. A disciple looks at the Word of God and says, God, speak to me. Pharisee says, God, Use it against, speak to them. A disciple says, God, speak to me. Tonight, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm, I'm going to ask you not to use the word of God as a weapon to bludgeon each other over the head with. I'm going to ask you to use it and say, God, speak to me. What do I need to do different? Because this is where we get it all wrong. When we use this to say, you should treat me different. You should talk to me different. You should listen to me more. And we use the Bible as, as, our, as our punching glove. Instead of saying, Lord, use your word to change what I need to change. And I'll let you handle them. 1 Peter 3. In the same way, in the same way as what? In the same way that he told them to submit to a human authority. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. 
Let's set up what's going on. People are getting saved. Women are going home and their husbands aren't saved. That produces a problem, doesn't it? Because they're saying, I belong to Jesus. And their husband, especially in that day and age, in that culture, says, no, you belong to me. So how would a wife, how would a wife obey Jesus and at the same time fitting into a culture where the man did everything and the man said everything, how is a woman supposed to go home and be respectful to Jesus and her husband at the same time when Jesus and her husband don't agree? Because women were going home and saying things like this. I don't have to listen to you anymore. In fact, you're an idiot. You don't know anything. My eyes have been opened. Your eyes are still shut. So I'll tell you what, some things are going to change around here because you don't know anything. I've been finding out what you don't know. I came back from church, and, and you know what? <clears throat> I found out not only are you going to hell, but you deserve to go there too. And I, I'm going to do, do life my way. How many, of you, how many of you men think that that would have won you over? <laughs> some of you, yes. Some of you like, like a, a blunt person to speak to you that way, but this is not, this is not a fantasy for us. I mean, several of you have been in that situation where you knew what it was like to follow Jesus and have a husband that didn't, didn't believe. Some of you men here had wives that didn't believe, and, and how, do you, how do you reconcile that when you get home? So the question was asked, we know it was asked because Paul had to answer it a couple of times. The question was asked, should I divorce this guy? Because how can I follow Jesus and stay married? And what Paul said was, if you were married when you got saved, stay married. If you were single when you got married, stay single for a while. But here, this is what Peter says, he says, go home and be respectful Because even if your husbands are disobedient to the word, they'll be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. This is radical. It would be silly of us to take this scripture and use it as as men to say, ha ha, do you see? Women. This is talking to the women, isn't it? Do you notice he doesn't say husbands? Tell your wives to be respectful for you, to you. Husbands, tell your wives to get in line. He's not talking to the husbands here. So men, mind your business. He's talking to the women. (laughs) Because we're all going to have to have Jesus looking at us. This is the thing. When I get the the opportunity to counsel couples, it's not always my favorite thing in the world. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's rough. But when you counsel a couple, if you've ever been in a session like that, you know this. That you have two different conversations. You have a conversation with this person, you have a conversation with this person. You never, this is the awkward thing, you get way more done if you don't just take the side of the person you're talking to. So if I'm talking to the husband, I'm going to say, look, this is what Jesus says that we need to do. This is how we need to, to let God change our hearts. This is what we need to do. I'm not sitting there going, wives, am I right? Yeah, they give us trouble all the time. You know what you need to do? No, we're talking about, well, what, what can God change about you? Then when you talk to the wife. You don't say, yeah, your husband, I talked to him. He doesn't know anything. I don't know how you live with him. No, when you talk to the wife, you say the same thing. What does God say you need to do? I don't care if you're 90% right and he's 10% wrong. You got 10% to work with there. Other way around. I don't care. <laughs> that, that would be a correct equation. Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean. 
you know what I mean. Here's the revolutionary thing about this whole book of 1 Peter. If you read it as a whole letter, you'll see a theme appearing over and over and over again. This is how we win. We don't win the way the world wins. We win by the way of the cross. And the way of the cross is you lay your life down. That's foolishness to the world. Jesus says to his disciples, because they're fighting over who gets to be the best, and he says, the Gentiles, when they get a little bit of power, they lord it over them, everybody else. They will make you submit to them. They will use their power and they'll lord it over you. He says, it's not that way with you. And if you want to be great in my kingdom, you better learn how to be a servant to everybody. You see, many people will go to Ephesians chapter 5 and say, see, wives, you should submit to your husbands. But they forget the verse right before that that says, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Apparently, I'm supposed to be submitted to you and you're supposed to be submitted to me. And we're all supposed to submit to one another in the fear of Christ. That's not a verse for domination. That's a verse for servanthood. And here, you want to know how you win your husband? If your husband dis- doesn't believe in Jesus, if your husband's disobedient to the, world, to the word, now maybe this is an unbeliever that's never believed, or maybe this is somebody that's played the game for a bit, then went home and said, I don't believe that stuff anymore, or I don't have to do that anymore. Maybe they say they're a Christian, but they still disobey God. How do you win them over? Do you win them over by dominating them? Do you win them over by out-talking them? Do you win them over by making them feel small? No, you win them over, even without a word sometimes, by your behavior, by choosing for the sake of Christ to lay yourself down. Now it says this in verse 2. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, Braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. He has no problem with you wearing a dress. He's no problem with jewelry. No problem with braiding hair. But he's saying, that's not what makes you great. That's not what makes you beautiful. That's not what, that's not what really what, what's going to set you apart. He says, it's this. Let it be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Now, gentle and quiet doesn't mean shut up, lady. Gentle and quiet means you're not easily troubled by this. You're not set off by it. See, quiet, like when we're talking about quiet waters, quiet doesn't mean without volume. Quiet means there's peace there. It's settled. It's not reactionary. It's not riled up easily. It's quiet. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit that we're all supposed to have. Gentleness is how I treat you despite how you treat me. Do you understand? Let's just be real here. There's some women that he sent back to their homes and their husband was not happy they got saved. And some of them had to put up with some stuff at home that I don't think any of you should ever have to put up with. But he said, you want to win them over? Women, you want to win them over? Here's how you do it. It's the way of the cross. Jesus showed us how to win. And the world thinks it's losing, but it's not. You lay your life down because we believe in resurrection. You put your life on the line. He says in verse 5, For in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, 
just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, <laughs> this is awkward. I don't think any of you women have to call your husbands Lord. <laughs> but Sarah did. The point here is what she wore. And, and you know what? Can I just tell you? In Sarah's time, do you know Rebecca, when, when, when Eliezer went to go Rebecca, get Rebecca, for, at Sarah's future daughter-in-law, this beautiful woman likely had a nose ring. So beautiful changes, right? Sarah had jewelry. Sarah had beautiful hair. Sarah had, we know she was beautiful because the, the Pharaoh of Egypt wanted her. But here's what was more beautiful than what she was wearing. Is what was on the inside of her. Sarah was a great woman. She could have easily said, I don't need you, Abraham. I don't need to have your baby. I'm old. I've done my bit. I've lived my life. But she did this for the Lord. Now, like I said, cultures change. And I don't think you need to have Abraham and Sarah's perfect marriage because their perfect marriage involved a concubine involved Abraham pretending she was his sister for a while so that another man could flirt with her. I don't think you need to say that's the perfect marriage. But let's see what he's talking about the same way. How did, it, how did Sarah? Sarah could have said, I, 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 I don't have to listen to anybody but God. But she chose. It's a choice. It's not about domination. It's about submission. It's about us saying to one another, I choose in the fear of Christ to put this person before myself, to put their needs before mine, and, and to say, okay, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you be this. You know what? God has, has called you, and I'm going to trust that you're leading this family in a good direction. And if you're not, I don't have to follow you. I don't have to follow you to the bar. I don't have to encourage you to do your bad thing, but I do have to trust in the Lord. When I trust in the Lord and, I, be, and I, I, I model my behavior after Christ, then he takes care of the hearts. Do I think that marriage in 2015 needs to look like it looked in, in Greek houses and in Jewish houses in that day and age? No, I don't think it should look exactly like that. But I think there are pillars that always stay the same. Things God made different about us that, that are good. Roles that we have that are good. Do I feel like I've got a perfect lock on it? No, I don't. But I do know this. If I, if I can use the word as my light and my lamp, we're on a good path. Then he says this. In verse 7, you husbands in the same way, live you with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker. Now that is a tough thing for me to read. Somebody's going to get offended by that verse. And I... I it, it doesn't get better because he goes, as with someone weaker, since she's a woman. <laughs> Peter, Peter, didn't you know that someday, 2,000 years later, I'd read your letter in front of people, and I've already told them I'm going to go verse by verse, so I can't skip that? Don't you know that that's going to sound really condescending for you to say, treat her like she's weaker. She's a woman. <laughs> It's not my fault. I didn't write it. <laughs> but here's the deal. Here's the truth. <laughs> the guys that Peter's writing to at the time used to think it was okay to throw their weight around. 
use their muscle, use their strength to exert domination. I'm the boss. If you don't get in line, I can smack you around until you get in line. That was completely acceptable in his day and age. He said, you need to stop that. You don't use your strength to dominate. You use your strength to serve. He says this, live with her an understanding. Be respectful to the gift that God gave you. He says, yeah, she might be weaker than you. That doesn't make her less than you. This is not a, a verse of condescending. This is a verse of honor. And if you read the rest of the scriptures, you'll see that. He says, husbands, lay your life down for your wives. In a culture where wives often existed to serve the men, he's saying, it's your turn to step up and be a servant. Like Jesus was for us. And I love this. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Fellow heir. Not sub, fellow, partner. A fellow heir of the grace of life. What he's laying out here might sound old school to us in 2015, but it was revolutionary to the people he was writing to. And he says, respect her, show her honor, because you and her inherited the same DNA from God. You and her have the same Holy Spirit. You and her have the same grace working in, so you better treat her right. Better treat her with honor, because if you don't, your prayers will be hindered. That, that smacks me upside the face. I've never been tempted to raise my hand to my wife. I've never been tempted to, 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 to treat her badly. But I can be honest, there's been times where I haven't shown her honor. When I haven't shown her honor, I can tell you, my prayers were hindered. If God joined two people together and made them one, there's, there's a holy covenant that takes place there. And, and Jesus, I'm sorry, Paul writes that that's a picture of Christ in the church. And you don't mess around with that. If you wonder why your prayers are hindered, there might be a dozen reasons. Your prayers might be working and you just haven't seen it yet. But let me ask you, one thing that you got to check on your dashboard of life to check for indicators is this. Have you been honoring your spouse? Have you treated them with honor? Have you laid your life down for them? Because when we let that get out of whack and we choose to use these same scriptures to beat each other over the head with them, or we choose to use our strength, or we choose to use our CC, because the women at the time were coming home and acting like they were spiritually superior to their husbands. And I can make you do it, I mean, because I'm the spiritual one. I'm the one that's been going to church. You don't know anything. The men were using their strength to dominate. But either way, do you see what's broken? They're not serving one another. They're not laying their lives down. Instead, they haven't seen God's image of marriage. They've made their own. Whatever works for me better. And they've used it and they've abused it. And their prayers aren't working because they don't honor one another. The husband's prayers aren't, aren't working because he's treated his wife like a servant instead of a partner and a fellow heir of the grace of life. We can all sit here and say, well, there's some things about this chapter that make me uncomfortable. Sure, it makes me uncomfortable too. The Word of God always makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> can I be honest? It always makes me uncomfortable. Not for the reason you think it does. I'm not embarrassed by it. The Word of God makes me uncomfortable sometimes. I shouldn't say always, but often. 
Sometimes it makes me uncomfortable because it shows the things in me that aren't quite at the level I want them to be yet. But the good news is the Word of God is not there just to condemn. It's not there to condemn at all. It's not there just to show you what's wrong. It's there to fix it. It's there to give you the grace and the strength to do what God's called you to do. Husbands should not be reading the part about the wives and saying, I can't wait till I get home to tell my wife this because she needs to get in line. (laughs) And women shouldn't be reading the part about the husbands saying, I can't wait to show this to him because he's been acting like a moron for too many years. (laughs) That's why at the beginning of each of these statements, he tells you who he's talking to. Hey, women, I'm talking to you. Hey, men, I'm talking to you. When we start using the word of God to dominate one another and to exert our power over each other, we act like the Gentiles. But you want to act like Jesus? Be a servant of all. Submit to one another in the fear of Christ. God has roles for us. God has leaders for us. God has places for us. God has differences. But in every case, you have to say, Lord, how can I become more like you in this situation? How can I be more like Jesus? In the same way as Jesus laid his life down, so we lay our life down. He says this, to sum it up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. We'll talk more about that in, in the future, but I just want to leave you with that. He says, if I were to sum it all up, here's what I should sum it up by saying. All of you be harmonious. You know the great thing about harmony? Do you know what harmonious really means? The wonderful thing about harmony is it's not two people singing the exact same notes. They're singing different notes that make a beautiful sound when placed together. They're singing the same song. They're singing the same part of the song, but they're singing different parts. Isn't that what's beautiful about church? We're different. We should be different. We celebrate our differences. We celebrate the fact that God didn't create us as clones, and we know that he gave us a part to play, so we honor each and every member for the part they play. Because when all of those instruments are playing, they're not playing the same note, but when they're all playing together, it makes a way more beautiful sound. It's not just the sum of its parts. It's far greater than that. It creates a beautiful harmony. Be harmonious. In other words, am I saying, and what I'm doing, how is it, how is it working with this, what this person is doing? Or if we're both following the voice of Jesus and we're both being led by the shepherd, and we're both obeying his directions, if we're both body parts that are giving our ideas from the head, then what I'm doing should be working with what this person is doing. Or else somebody, somebody's off. A marriage is the same way. We're different. It's okay to be different. I used to think I wanted a, a, a woman, I wanted a wife that, that read the same books I did, thought the same way I did, laughed at the same jokes I did. That's just really weird, though. I don't want that. And I thank God God didn't give me that. God gave me a wife that's very different from me. But you know what? We have a great time. I found out that my wife doesn't want to read my thick history book like that. It's not her thing. But do you know what? I'll tell you something about Tia. She loves the museums that I love probably even more than I do. But she's very visual. 
So she'll be looking at something. While I'm reading the thing underneath, she's looking and studying the, the intricate detail, and she'll remember everything about it. So we'll leave the site, and we'll both be able to rattle off facts together, but they go together. I found out that God gave me somebody totally different than me, and it works really well. Why do we fight that? It's because at some level, when we think we're the greatest thing that ever hit the planet, we feel the need to make everybody like us and submit to us and conform to us, and that's idolatry. If we'll say we're going to conform to Jesus, then we can all be a little different but playing the same song. And I want you to know that God's got that for your marriage today. Your marriage in 2015 doesn't need to look like all the other marriages in 2015. It doesn't need to look like the marriages in, in the year 30 AD either. There were some different cultures there. But there are, there's the cream that rises to the top. There are truths within those cultures. There are truths within what God said to those cultures at that time that remain the same. So when I look back at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, is there anybody here that struggles with whether or not you should eat meat because you're afraid it's been offered to idols? Anybody here worried about that? I mean, forget, forget if it causes cancer. Anybody worried that it's been offered to idols? So do you skip over that chapter that talks about that? No, because it's, it's still talking to you. It's, it's the truth remains the same. It's in, a, it's in a cultural context, but the truth is the same. When I read this, it's in a cultural context, and sometimes I don't identify it with it as much as maybe that person did there, but I see that God still got a plan for families. God still got a plan for men and women. He's got a way to make it work. It doesn't mean it has to look like it looked 2,000 years ago or 4,000 or 6,000. It probably shouldn't. But it also means it's going to be different than the rest of the world. We're not going to conform to the world either. We're conforming to Jesus. Amen? So when I read this, I go, God, what can you change about me? What can you change about me? What have I been doing that's hindered my prayers because of the way I've treated my wife? My wife reads this. She says, Lord, how can I allow you to change my heart so that I'm not doing this to my husband, so that I'm, I'm instead being, being that, that helpmate at his side and I'm her helpmate as well. How can we both come together and see God's will done in our lives? How can we be co-heirs of the grace of God? How can we be sharers of the promise of God? And can we do that and have different roles? I think we can. I think it's okay. I think it's good to have different roles. I think it's good that we're not doing the same thing, that we're not two of the same people, but that God gives us roles, and that's good. And those roles may change or shift from time to time, but there are some constants that stay the same. Let's ask God to give us some wisdom tonight. How about that? Amen? Stand up with me. Lord, we, we ask that you give us the ears of the disciple not the ears of the Pharisee. We don't want to be the kind of people that read this and go, oh, I can't wait to tell my wife she'll change. Or I can't wait to tell my husband he'll get his act together. We want to see this and say, Lord, how can you work this in me? God, I, uh, I'm, I'm just 
constantly in awe of how the cross showed us a true way to win. The world thinks we need to win by just having a little bit more strength than the other guy, a little bit more might than the other guy. But you showed us how to win by laying your life down, totally, totally destroying the work of the evil one. Help us to model the cross in our lives. We don't want to be like the Gentiles. We want to be like Jesus. Your kingdom is a kingdom where the servants are the greatest, so help us to serve one another, to lay our lives down, put our lives on the line for one another, to be brave and strong enough, courageous enough to have enough guts to not be so selfish, but to be bold enough and brave enough to lay our life down when it counts. Put ourselves in front of the bullet and say, I'm going to put someone before me because you put yourself before us. You put us before you, your own life. You gave your own life in our place. Lord, we thank you for it. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.